0: I am very excited about this series while I was going on vacation. I kept track of you guys um, Online and and things like that. I'm really excited about this series for a couple things Um, reason number one I love this church and Talking about what this church is all about is something I just do naturally I could do that all day I go other places and they ask me to tell them about this church So talking about what this church values the most is not something that's really difficult for me The other thing is this I love baseball I'm not a Johnny Come lately poser baseball fan like Jim is. He didn't become a baseball fan until last October, okay? What coincided coincided with that, the Rockies big streak, right? So so I, I love baseball. I've been a baseball fan since as long as I can remember. I can't remember a time where I wasn't a baseball fan. I can, I can argue with you about baseball. I can tell you stats. I can tell you all about people who lived, died, and played 30 years before I was even born. I can argue with you about who shouldn't and should be in the Hall of Fame. Pete Rose, people like that, you know. And there's all <laughs> kinds of things that I could just go on and on with. I love baseball movies. I, I love movies like The Natural. Did you ever see The Natural Robert Redford, yeah, it was a good movie. Uh, Bull Durham, I I typically have a a rule of not watching movies with Kevin Costner in them because he makes me ill for whatever reason. Uh, But if it's a baseball movie, I'll watch him. Major League, great movie. The Sandlot, remember that one, The Sandlot? You play ball like a girl. Remember that line? That was a great line. Eight men out. That's another good one. Field of Dreams. Never Another Ken, Kevin Costner movie, but good movie, okay? Probably not my favorite baseball movie, not even close, but with one of the most classic lines ever is a baseball movie simply known as a league of their own. Yeah, that's true. I mean, that's one of the fundamentals of baseball. There is no crying in baseball. And what we've been learning in this series is it's important to know what you value the most and what's most important, what the rules are more than anything else. It's most important when you're playing baseball to know how you win you got to know how to push runs across home plate. That's the object of the game. The same thing is true for us as a church. It's important for us to know what we're going to hang on to, what's most important, and consequently what we're not going to hang on to, and what's not as important. That's why we've been tracking through this series with, with our values, because they're only values in so much as we live them, in so much as we breathe them, breathe them, in so much as we actually value them. Otherwise, they're just sentences on a piece of paper that are posted on a website somewhere. That's all they are. So a couple weeks ago, Jim kicked off the series by saying, we're, we're going to talk about biblical authority. That's our very first value. We've tracked with this for the past three years now. And Jim asked us this question. Would you be willing to consider aligning your life under the authority of the Bible? Because a whole lot of us have this story. We've tried aligning our lives under every other kind of authority we could find, including our own, and we blew up our lives or someone else blew up our life. And our statement would be simply this. Biblical authority is just a better way to do your life. Last week he talked about this value, our second one, relational intimacy, which is the truth that Jesus made it possible for us to be reconnected with a God who we've fallen desperately short of. Because of our sin, because of our shortcomings, because of all the things in our life that don't measure up to who God is, Jesus made it possible for us to be reconnected with him through His death and through His burial and through His resurrection. And as an example of that last week, we celebrated with a baptism weekend and we baptized over 200 people last weekend, which is really, really cool. Which is mind-blowing when you think that we baptized 400 and some people just a couple months ago. God is doing something in this place. Now, today we're going to look at value number three, which is authentic community. And authentic and community are both kind of cliche buzzwords, but here's what authentic means. It means real or genuine. Community means a group of people sharing or experiencing or doing something together. Simplify it and say it this way, it's just better to do life with people than alone. One really is the loneliest number, right? I mean, you don't have to believe in God to agree with that statement. And of all the values that we're chasing after in this series, this one probably connects best to our baseball metaphor for all kinds of different reasons. I mean, obviously, baseball is a team sport. Everyone wears the same uniform. Everyone sits in the same dugout. If you've never sat in a dugout before, it's a beautiful experience. It's a wonderful experience. It's where in Little League, we start chanting really stupid things like, We want a pitcher, not a belly itch or things like that that you wouldn't say in any other context and who knows what that really means it's the it's the place where we share all of our equipment to the degree that you don't want to know what kind of equipment is shared in a dugout all right some of you're like i don't even know what that means that's okay you don't want to know all right Uh, it's the place where some of us chewed tobacco or dipped for the first time and consequently threw up in the dugout it's where it's a place of commonality it's different than solo sports. If I, I run. I don't know if anybody else runs or bikes or whatever. And I know you can do those things kind of as a team. But at the end of the day, running is a solo sport. It is you. okay? And if you gave me the choice between running five miles and playing baseball all day, I'm playing baseball all day long. There's just something beautiful about team sports. I grew up playing third base and I loved that moment at the top of the first inning when we were the home team where we would all get together, huddle up, do one, two, three, here we go, and then we would run out on the field together, being careful not to step on the chalk lines because that's bad luck. You got to remember that. And then we get out there and we take infield together as a team. In team sports, you share everything, the wins, the losses, the ups, the downs. Your teammates see all of your best moments. They see your home runs. They see your no-hitters, your diving catches, and they see your base hits. But they also see what? All your errors. They see you strike out or get picked off. They see your most embarrassing moments. Probably my most embarrassing moment happened on a baseball field. I was playing third base. My dad had come down the night before. He, he and I would always go stay in a hotel the night before when he would come to visit me. We went to Wendy's at like 2 o'clock in the morning and ate like the last cheeseburgers they had out for the day. And I got food poisoning. So the next day I decided I still want to go to my game and, and play third base. And so I go and I'm taking infield. And I'm, I literally can't like stand up. And then I get that feeling you get before you're going to throw up. You know the feeling? Your tongue starts to kind of swell. Your head starts to itch. And you know it's coming. And I thought the best thing I could do was to head towards the nearest authority figure which was my coach who was hitting infield at home plate he's out here hitting infield I'm walking in from third base I get to about the batter's box and go coach I feel like I'm gonna throw and it just goes everywhere all over home plate all over his cleats all over him and then all the you know the men all scatter in that moment then the team moms come out and they take care of it because moms moms can handle stuff like that dads and coaches we can't handle that kind of stuff if you got your Bibles, this is a great transition. If you got your Bibles, go to Acts chapter 2, okay? Acts chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 42 through 47 tonight, and we're going to live in these verses. If you got a Flatirons Bible, it's page 757. As you're getting there, let me kind of set this passage up for you, okay? What we're about to look at, you may notice as we read through it that all of our values, if you know Flatirons values, all of them fall out of these verses, because what we're about to look at is the first church in its infancy, in its most true and pure form. If there was ever a time where the church was close to what Jesus had in mind when he thought it up, it was this church. And so we would be really wise to look at the first church if we want to be the kind of church that Jesus wants us to be. So let's take a look. And we're just kind of process through this kind of slowly. Look at a few different phrases. Check it out. Verse 42. They, the first church, devoted themselves. Stop right there. Okay? They devoted themselves. That word devoted means to ratchet yourself to something, to affix yourself to something, to remain, to cleave faithfully, to hang on to with everything you have. So what we're about to read is apparently important. What they devoted themselves to is going to reveal to us what their values were, what they were playing for, what was most important. And it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles Teaching. Now stop right there. It's guys like Matthew, Mark, Luke, John who lived with, walked with and learned from Jesus. Now they're turning around. And they're teaching people what Jesus taught them. This is biblical authority. This is value number one. This is the word of God. Now here's the thing. You don't have to go to church to hear the Bible being taught. You don't have to go to church to hear the word of God. All you got to do is sit down in the comfort of your own home and turn on the TV and you can at least hear it being taught. It may not be taught well, but you can watch it Or you can download it on the internet. You can load it up on your iPod. I've podcasted guys, great preachers, who've been dead for 30, 40 years. I mean, you can hear great teaching while you're exercising, while you're walking, while you're sitting at home, while you're doing whatever you want to do. You don't have to go to church to hear the Bible being taught. But there's more to it than this. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. The fellowship in the Greek is this word koinonia, which simply means communion with one another, participation with one another. It, means a, it literally means a shared life, doing life together. And they were devoted to it. They held on tightly to it. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. It says they also devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. See, there's a reason why you invite people over for dinner. It's not just some custom. There's something very deep and intimate about sharing a meal with somebody. There's a reason we do that. And we've lost some of that in our culture. But in many Middle Eastern cultures and other cultures to this day, especially in this day, sharing a meal with someone showed that they were important to you. You valued them and you valued one another. But this was more than just breaking bread, sharing a meal together. This also meant them participating in communion with each other, celebrating the body and the blood of Jesus. And they did that regularly. They also devoted themselves to prayer. That's relational intimacy. See, these guys were actually crazy enough to believe that they could approach the throne of grace with confidence because of what Jesus had done in their life. Because everything in their past had taught them there are certain things you can't touch and certain things you can't do. You've got to follow a religious procedure. Priests have to pray for you on your behalf, make sacrifices for you on your behalf. There's places you can't go and things you can't touch that only they can touch. Jesus came along and made everything common, See, that's where we get our word community. The the root of it actually means defiled, meaning anybody and everybody can touch it. Jesus came and made access to his father common. We can all get there through Jesus. That's what he did. So they devoted themselves to prayer. So that's what they held on to. Those are the things we desperately want to hold on to. But what happens when you hold on to those things? Look at verse 43. right? I mean, isn't that our tendency when we read stuff like that? We go, of course, it was in the Bible times, you know? I mean, the sun always shined, the birds always chirped, and everything was always good. Of course, that's the way it worked in the Bible. That's just not how it looks in my life. Let's press pause for a second. Let me paint a picture of the context that the first church, this one we're reading about, was birthed into for you, because it was birthed into captivity, Roman captivity, to be exact. The Jews had had their land stolen from them multiple times, this time by the Roman Empire. And consequently, they lived in constant fear. And sure, there have been many attempts to overthrow the Roman Empire, all that were crushed. Which led to thousands of Jewish people, friends, and families being crucified by the thousands up and down Roman streets. For everyone to see, to be made an example of. At any point in time, a Roman soldier could walk up to your wife and command her to carry a burden for him for up to a mile, and you couldn't do anything about it unless you wanted to die. You didn't make much money because they took all your land, and on top of that, they taxed you somewhere in the neighborhood of 80%, which left you hardly anything to live on, which meant you were very, very poor, which sent people scattering in all kinds of different directions. Some decided to switch teams. If you can't beat them, join them. That's why people like Matthew, who became a follower of Jesus, were tax collectors. Zacchaeus, if you remember that story, was a tax collector. They were were traitors to their own people. There were people like zealots. Jesus had a follower named Simon who was a zealot before he followed Jesus. Their whole objective was to kill as many Romans as as, as possible, to stick it to the man, so to speak. Sadducees, they decided to capitalize on the religious environment, and so they made all kinds of money off of the temple. It was every person for themselves and people scattered. They isolated themselves because of a huge crime rate and extreme poverty and no hope. If you've ever been to a third world country, it was like this. They would build walls around their houses. You can see this if you go to somewhere like Haiti today. Big wall around your house and you put shards of glass on the top of the cement so that if somebody tries to climb over, they're going to be terribly injured. It's a context of isolation and fear with no hope. Hope, and that is what the first church was birthed into. So with that in mind, why don't we revisit those words and hold those up against this backdrop. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders. and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together. They had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, just imagine for a second, standing on the outside looking in to that very first church, living in that culture. What are the things, what are the questions, what are the statements that would be running through your mind? I imagine you would say things like, I want in on that. that's that's beautiful, that's different, that's that's great, That's, that's, that's strange, that's peculiar, that's incredible. I mean, all those things would be floating through your mind and coming off your tongue. But I imagine more than anything else, you'd probably look at that and go, that's better. That's just better. That's a better way to do life. That's better than the life I have. See, I think when people saw how attractive their life was and then realized that Jesus was the author of that lifestyle, they flocked to Jesus. So of course... The Lord added to their number daily those who were being reconnected to God, of course. So I don't know if you know this or not, but they weren't called Christians first. That was many years later they referred to as Christians. They were actually called members of the way. The way. Because of their distinctive way of living. Now don't mistake this for some prosperity gospel nonsense that says if you have enough faith, then you'll be blessed and you'll have a lot of money and you'll drive a nice car and you'll never get sick. That's not what this is teaching. In fact, it's teaching the exact opposite. What this is outlining for us is the way these people lived beautifully in the midst of horrible, horrible circumstances. They still lived beautifully. And I think we could all agree if that's what we mean when we say authentic community, yeah, that's better. That's better. We should chase after that. We should value that. But here's the tough question I've been wrestling with and I think we'll all wrestle with tonight. Simply this, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, you gotta ask it. Is that the way you live your life? Is that the way I live my life? I mean, is that what Scott Nichols' life looks like? Acts 2, 42 through 47? And I imagine our answers would just run the gamut all the way across the spectrum. But I'm going to go out on a limb here and answer for myself and for probably most of us in the room and emphatically say no. No. Let's look at it this way. What if God catapulted all those first believers from that first church 2,000 years into the future and put them right in here today, and those first believers followed us for a couple of weeks, in and out of this place and all throughout our lives. What do you think, in light of their experience of being the church, their questions and observations would be for us? I think very few of their observations and questions would be theological, by the way. I think most of them would be very practical. I think they would actually look at us and go, uh, question, question, why do all 7,000 of you have to have your own lawnmower? <laughs> why do you all have two, three, four cars? Uh, why, why do you guys not share your stuff with each other? Why are there people who are being evicted and foreclosed on while there are other people who have plenty of space and plenty of money? And I, I mean, that's the questions I think they would legitimately ask us. See, I think if they followed some of us out of this place and into this place and around, I think they would look at us and go, you know what? It looks different, but you're hanging on to and valuing the same value of shared life. Because a lot of us do share our lives with each other in a significant and deep way. But I think for a lot of us, a couple days into the week, they would look around and go, where would everybody go? I mean, is that all you, you just walk in, sit for an hour, and then walk out, and that's, that's it? Where would all the people go? Who are you sharing your life with i think that's the questions they would ask us and here's the thing last year we called this series are we there yet that was a good title because the resounding answer is no no and the answer is the same this year we're not there yet but we've got to put these values in front of us every year if not more often to say this is what we want to chase after because we're not there yet but that's the direction we want to go so, if we agree that if life looked more like that, it would most certainly be better in authentic community, we've got to ask ourselves a couple of questions. One is, namely, how does community happen? I mean, how does it occur? I think one word kind of overarches the whole thing organically. Organically, meaning community happens best when it's not forced, but it's cultivated. My daughter Landry is planting a garden with my mom, and what Landry is learning is you don't just take a seed, jam it into really dry ground, dump 10 gallons of water on it, and then stand there and wait for it to grow in the next five seconds. That's not the way it works. Now, gardening is a slow cultiva- cultivation, but it's directional, right? It's for a purpose. You intentionally work towards growth, right? Now, think about the most significant friendships you have. Think about them, okay? How many of those significant friendships began because that person before you ever met him, walked up to you for the very first time and went, let's be best friends. Anybody? I mean, that works in kindergarten really well. But at some point when somebody does that to you, you get a restraining order, right? I mean, that's kind of the way that works. It creeps you out after like third grade. That, that's not how it works. I had a friend in high school, had a girl walk up to him one time and went, God told me we're supposed to go out with each other. And he went, well, God forgot to tell me. So bye. You know, I mean that just that just doesn't work. I mean, significant relationships happen over time through shared experience, namely life together. You went to school with them, your kids played on the same team together, you worked with them, you went to the same gym, you went to the same church, but it doesn't happen overnight you got to hear this next statement, okay? There's some key phrases in here. This is why the best thing any church can do is to simply provide an environment where it's possible and likely that if you want to connect with other people, you can. Does that make sense? All we can do is create an environment where it's possible and likely that if you want to connect with other people, you can. See, over the past 30 years, and specifically really intensely the last 10 years, church in America has been trying desperately to force people into community through all kinds of different ministries and programs. And usually the way it works, I've been through this experience, a a church launches a big small group ministry. And it's not said this way, but it's insinuated this way, that if you're a good follower of Jesus, you'll get into this small group program. And so everybody gets into the small group program, and it lasts for about a month. And everybody trickles out. And a few people find community, but for most of us, it just doesn't work that way. There's all these parameters and definitions of what community is and what small groups supposed to look like and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I'll just be honest, I'll, I'll lean out over the plate and take one for the team here in regards to the male gender, okay? For those of us who've been around church for a little while, for us guys, when we hear small group, we hear sharing of feelings and crying and holding hands, you know, there's Things that don't come natural, okay? That that doesn't sound natural at all. It doesn't sound appealing at all. What sounds appealing to me is getting together in the backyard and having a cookout with people. I'll do that. Getting together and going to a game with some people. uh, I'll do that. That's a much more natural thing. But my question is, how did that definition of community ever become what it is? Who said that's what community really is? To get together and to cry and share and things like that. What if we let the Bible define community more than church tradition? And here's the statement. If sitting around in a group and sharing your feelings and talking and, and crying gets you to authentic community, gets you to shared life, then go for it. That's awesome. But as far as I can tell, the first church, it says that they got together in a big group in the temple courts, and they went to their homes, and then they just let their lives bleed into one another's lives. They shared their stuff. They ate together. They hung out. They celebrated, and they played together. And when you look at it that way, all of a sudden the door is fling open and everything's up for grabs in regards to becoming an environment that could potentially lead you towards significant connection with other people. All of a sudden, hiking becomes a vehicle towards community. Skiing, climbing, going to movies, cooking out, sitting in the park while your kids play. The list goes on. Bible studies. Whatever that looks like, the question has to become, what will move me towards a shared life with other people? What's the vehicle that will get me there? But the problem is we often mistake the vehicle for the destination Meaning there are plenty of us who have been in small groups in the past. We just didn't have a shared life with anybody And just because you're hiking with some people doesn't mean you're sharing your life with them The goal is shared life. That's the destination. Now. What's the vehicle that can get us there? We've got some vehicles and those vehicles in this place will come and go and they'll change and they'll ebb and flow But currently we've got some vehicles one is serving We hear stories all the time of people who signed up to serve, and we'll talk about this value next week, and now they have a deep abiding relationship with other people because they signed up to serve in children's ministry or greeting or in the parking lot. I mean, nothing will endear you to other people like standing out in the hot sun, getting flipped off repeatedly and almost run over with a car. I mean, you are bonded with people like that. So our people who work in the parking lot love each other because no one else does, you know? I mean, that's the way it works. They're... Other ministries around this place that are designed to help you find other people. Student ministries for middle school and high school kids. Merge for for college-age students. Fusion for singles, two-to-one for couples. Shift, which is, by the way, our recovery ministry on Friday night, which is the most vivid and beautiful, close-to-the-first-church picture I could ever show you. It's for people who have stuff in their lives, which is all of us, by the way. We've got a couple hundred people that go to shift. Reality is all 7,000 of us should be there every Friday night. So we all got our stuff. The other thing, the other vehicle we have is this thing called Flatirons List. If you jump on our website, you'll see it in the upper right-hand corner. And I'll be honest with you, you know, those of you who were here back when we launched Flatirons List and Jim showed us how to work with it and all that kind of stuff, Jim brought the idea back to me and back to our team, and I looked at it and went, that's a great idea. I'll just never do it. I mean, that was my honest response. And some of you had the same response. You just didn't say it. I said it and not punched me, you know. But I went, I, I would never do that. Here's why, because I'm scared. At the end of the day, I'm scared. I, I'm not going to get online and, and find a group and then go hiking with some people I've never met before because they may leave me for dead in the woods. I don't know how that's going to turn out for me, right? <laughs> you, you guys are the same way. Some of you guys are going, I, I would never post a group and invite strangers to my house or to do something together because that's just intimidating. But I'll be honest with you, some of the most significant community that my wife and I have found, relationships we found, happened, ironically, because of Flatirons. Listen, you're going to look at me as I tell this story, and you're going, you made that up, Scott. You made that up for this talk tonight. And I promise I'd never do that, and I didn't do it tonight. Here's the way the story goes, okay? My wife has a friend named Kim who was on Flatirons' list checking things out, and she called Allison and went, hey, I noticed there's a lady who just moved here who posted this playgroup thing for parents of... Preschoolers and they're going to be meeting on such and such day in the park in your neighborhood, the one right in the middle, a couple blocks and walking distance from our house. And she's like, Maybe you should go check it out. And so Allison's like, I'm going to go check it out. And I'm like, What are you doing? You're crazy. I mean, what happens if you get there and this lady is not a lady at all and it's a crazy clown you know or something like I have a deep fear of clowns just so you know uh you know what happens and she's looking at me going you're a moron I'm walking down the street to the park goodbye so she walks down the street to the park she gets together with with these couples and their kids and our kids are the exact same age as Beth the lady who hosted the group her kids Sam and Charlie and the kids hit it off immediately because that's what kids do because they're much more like Jesus than we are and so they just go off and they play but then Allison and Beth they they hit it off and they start getting together regularly. They start doing this playgroup thing, and then they start taking care of each other's kids and doing things for each other and hanging out more regularly. And I'm like, that's awesome. That's great. That's Wow, you found that. And then they, the wives, had this bright idea. We need to get the husbands together. To which I responded, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, you guys got your thing over there. I'm fine. He's fine. I don't know about this whole thing. And so they kind of staged some things out in the lobby, and we ran into each other a couple times, and we both kind of scoped each other out and went, he looks normal. He acts normal. That's not too bad or whatever. You know, it's just, you, this is how it works. I'm being real transparent here. So, so then they're like, you know, you guys should go do something together. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's like extreme, you know. But then we kind of went out on the limb. We went to a Rockies game together. He grew up in St. Louis, a Cardinals fan. I'm a huge Cincinnati Reds fan. We sat there at the Rockies game for four hours and talked baseball. And it was beautiful. I mean, it was It was awesome. We talked about our wives and our kids and stuff like that. But we talked about baseball, you know, and and we've hit it off. So we got together on the 4th of July. We hang out all the time now. They're building a house on our street, right, down the street. Now, I could never make up a story like that without God striking me dead, right? That's what, that's Flatiron's list, okay? So maybe you need to give it a shot or whatever. But here's the deal, okay? All of these things are just vehicles that can get you towards community. But you got to drive them. You got to drive them. Remember in the 80s when movies like Back to the Future came out? We assumed that by 2008 we'd be riding around on hovercrafts, right? We'd be jumping in cars like the Jetsons and going, Take me to the grocery, and we'd lay back and go to sleep, and then we'd arrive at the grocery and it would drive itself. We don't have those today, and we don't have ministries like that either. you got to drive them. You have to pursue this thing called community. We can't do it for you, so we're not going to be disingenuous and try. Next question is this. What does authentic community actually look like? I mean, what are the signposts of authentic community? I think the first most important thing is it's safe. It's safe. That's where this whole phrase me too came from. There's no, there's so many stories out there of of people being hurt and abused and harmed and judged by churches. The very places that are supposed to take care of the hurt, harmed, judged, and abused. That's a lot of our stories. But here's the thing. Jim didn't decide this would be a me too place. I didn't decide that. Jim just gave us language for what flat irons is. And if you're new around here, here's what me too means. It means that you've made a mess of your life and me too. You've fallen in a ditch and you couldn't dig your own way out and me too. You've got stuff in your life that hurts other people around you, deep-seated character flaws, and me, too. You haven't done sexuality right, and me, too. You've struggled to do the things and love your family the way you're supposed to, and me, too. You've been selfish and out of control at times, and me, too. You are five seconds away, one bad decision away from wrecking your life. Me, Scott Nickel, too. We are to the death committed to this around here. We will not pick and choose which sins we're going to lambast people for and which ones we're just going to ignore. Because in a lot of churches, those ones you choose to ignore typically are the ones that are most represented in the lives of the elders, conveniently. We just will not do that. I don't know if you know this or not, but um, Jim and I get to travel sometimes to other churches and camps and stuff like that. And we tell people stories about you guys. We just tell a lot of stories and we call them our me too stories. And inevitably there's one of two reactions to your stories, okay? To this place's stories. And there's no in between. Literally, I've experienced this a lot of times now. Uh, The first reaction is there's people who come up to us afterwards going, I've always hoped, I've always dreamed that church could be that way. Tell me more. They just deeply resonate with this place and the stories we tell them. But then there's these other people. There's these people who like to come up with a finger point and go, you know, actually, you didn't do that right. You shouldn't have handled that person that way. You should have told them more about what they were doing wrong. You should have kind of maybe beat them over the head with the Bible a little bit. And so I've started giving a disclaimer. Uh, I do it all the time. Jim started doing it now too. I'll stand in front of all these people. I'll tell them story after story about you guys. And then at the end, I can tell there's some people who are resonating, some people are very uncomfortable. And I look at all the people who are uncomfortable. I go, listen, if you're uncomfortable about, about that story that I told you or the way we handled that person or how we loved and grace and truth that person, and you think that you need to come talk to me afterwards about it, you don't. You don't. And you should see the response out of the crowd like, what? what, what? You know, it's like, no, you don't. And, and I go on, I go, listen, here's the thing. If, if you're going to come to me and tell me we're doing it wrong, I don't have time to talk to you because the person behind you may want to be interested in how to connect with Jesus. So go read about Jesus. Read who he loved and how intensely he loved them and point your finger back at Jesus because I don't have time to talk to you about this. And it happens every, every time. See, the first church, they had a big Me Too moment, by the way, a real clarifying moment for them. It all centered around their leader. His name was Peter. Peter was told by God to go hang out with this guy named Cornelius, who was a Roman soldier. Last person on earth a Jewish person should ever go hang out with was a Roman soldier, the object of their oppression. But Peter's obedient, and he goes. Not only does he hang out with Cornelius, he spends the night there. He shares meals with them, and he baptizes him and his whole family because they were followers of Jesus. And word gets back to the first church back in Jerusalem, and they start freaking out. Here's what happens. Acts 11, 2 through 3. When Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, You went into the house of uncircumcised men, and you ate with them. Finger-pointed. Saying, what are you thinking hanging out with people like that? The number one thing that was said to Jesus. What are you doing hanging out with people like that? And Peter goes on to explain, isn't this consistent with what Jesus taught us? And by the way, God commanded me to do it. And by the way, they're followers of Jesus too. And they're convinced by the end of the, of the story, Acts eleven eighteen, 18, they respond this way. When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, so then, God's granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. So, authentic community is safe and it's inclusive. You see, the story of God is one of ever expanding community. God didn't create us, by the way, because he was lonely. God has and had perfect community in and of his own person God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. He just chose to let it grow. He made this guy named Adam, and then he thought that wasn't good enough. He made Eve, and then he called this guy named Abram to create a whole nation of people that would be peculiar and different and set apart and follow after him and love him and love one another. And then Jesus came and he opened up the floodgates of which you and I are the benefactors. That kind of community, that inclusive community is incredibly attractive, right? And very different from what our culture has to offer. It was the same way. It's always been the same way ever ever since Jesus walked around here. About 300 years after Jesus' death, the Roman emperor was a guy named Julian. And he was trying really hard to reignite interest in the ancient pagan religions that they used to follow. And so he was frustrated because everybody was more drawn to Christianity at this point in time. He's quoted as saying this. Atheism, which in his mind was Christianity, has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It's a scandal there's not a single Jew who's a beggar and that the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well, while those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. Isn't that beautiful? See, if we continue to move in this direction, we will stand out quite a bit. In a culture where you can be connected with someone on the other side of the planet in about half a second, we're so disconnected from one another, are we not? See, community is all these things, but more than anything else, it's probably messy. That's where the church sometimes promises people a bag of goods. It's not gonna be pretty. It'll just be better. When you take someone's messy life and put it with someone else's messy life, you probably are gonna get a bigger mess. But better to go through that mess together than alone. We have a clarifying question we ask around here all the time. It's simply this. Who are your two o'clock in the morning people? Meaning if and when life falls apart at two o'clock in the morning, who are you going to call? And if the first people to come to mind are people who live hours away, then that may be clarifying that you need to pursue a deeper level of sharing life with people in closer proximity to you within this church. You see, this two o'clock in the morning thing has two sides to it because... Being someone else's 2 o'clock in the morning person is very attractive, right? We all like to kind of be the hero, right? The one who swoops in, the one who takes care of, the one who rescues and gives and, and just is saving the day. I mean, we all want to be that person. But who wants to be the person who has to pick up the phone and say, I need you to come over. I need help. We don't want to be that person. We don't want to be the one who needs as much as we want to be the one who gives. And everything in our culture would tell us in that moment of deepest need, when life falls apart, you pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you get it done all by yourself. The problem is that's not best and that's not what the Bible teaches us. See, here's what I'm not saying tonight. I'm not saying by the end of today, you need to have a list of ten two o'clock in the morning people. That's not what I'm saying. I'm really just asking questions today. My questions are this, are, are you sharing your life with people within this church? Are you moving in that direction and what's the next step for you? See, for some of you, the next step may to be blow up the vehicle you're in because it's not leading you to community or fixing it or retooling it. See, just because you're in a small group doesn't mean you have community. Some of you, you're so busy with all the multiple attempts at community, you can't have community. That's the trap my wife and I fell into a long time ago. She had her Bible study, had my Bible study, we had our couples class, we had church service, and then we had our small group we were trying to go to. It was exhausting. Too many things to do, and I'm really grateful that having kids forced us to blow that up. Some of you need to fix it or blow it up. Some of you, you just, need to, you just need to put some names with some faces. You sneak in and you sneak out, but you don't know who anybody is around here. Nobody knows you. You need to know and be known. So maybe this is a tough challenge. This is a tough one. Maybe tonight, all, all you need to do is just hang out a little bit. Go introduce yourself to somebody. Say hi. Maybe that person you turned and greeted, you could actually hang out and chat with afterwards. Put some names with some faces. Some of you got names and you got faces, but you're not very involved. So you have a very surface level of community with people in this church. And so maybe you need to sign up up to serve or go be a part of one of our other ministries. I don't know. Maybe Flatirons List is a great option for you. If you're considering the whole Flatirons List thing, post in a group or, or join in a group, go do that tonight we got a training right after this service that will tell you even more about Flatirons. It will happen right in front of the sound booth. Go there tonight. Get some more information about it. Learn the ins and outs about it. Take a risk. What do you have to lose? It doesn't work out. Okay. You're back where you started. There's a huge, huge benefit if it does. Well, listen. This is not a funnel deal, okay? There's no steps. There's no, like, 12-point strategy towards perfect community. Uh, You can jump in wherever and whenever you want. But the truth is, are you moving towards... Are you moving towards life with other people? Because life with other people is better than being alone. Because shared life shows up when it counts. When things get hard, when that tower falls on your life, like Jim talked about last week, when marriages start to fall apart, when kids start to run away, and when we have to make those horrible, gut-wrenching, grueling trips to hospitals and cemeteries, that's when authentic community is at its best, when we're at our worst. See, I think there's a reason Jesus came to this earth in a very messy time, in a very messy place with a very messy family and walked around for 33 years with very messy people, 12 messy guys, died a very messy death to show us how to live life in the midst of our messiness. But not only that, but to redeem it, to make it beautiful so that you and I in the midst of all of our messiness could look back at Jesus and he could say, Me too. Me too. Let's pray. God, um, a lot of us are coming before you tonight. and We are lonely. Really desperately lonely. And God, for some of us, um, a room like this with hundreds of people in it is the most lonely place we could ever find ourselves because it just points out that we don't know anybody. And God, I'm convinced one of the best ways you take care of us is through each other. So for any way that we have not taken care of each other well within this church, Father, we ask for you to forgive us. Help us to do this better. God, help us to pursue one another, whether we're the one that's isolated and alone or whether we just need to include more people. God, would you just push and pull us towards sharing our life with one another. Give us opportunities to do that. Thanks that it's all possible because of your son, Jesus, that we can come before you, our Father, our God, unashamed. It's in his beautiful name we pray. Amen.